Let's take our Bibles once again and turn over to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And I want to just draw our attention to one verse as we begin. We'll be dealing with verses 9 through 16. But we'll just read verse 9 of Hebrews 13 as we begin. The Bible says, Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. Our subject this morning is that expression there in verse 9. It's the heart established with grace. The heart established with grace. Uh, what does it mean to have a heart that is established with grace? A heart that's established with grace, obviously the effects of that, that they would be visible. When a heart is established with grace, the effects will be evidenced. It is the grace of God that establishes the heart of man. As we read even in Isaiah 57, we read some of those very sobering thoughts of what man can do, what man's heart will lead him to do, and how God in His sovereignty and God in His mercy uh, will give a new heart. Uh, if we were left to ourselves and left to our own doings, uh, we would continue to, if you will, undo ourselves. We would continue down that path. We would continue to do everything and anything uh, opposite uh, to what grace does in the heart. Uh, grace is not a philosophy. Grace is not something that is uh, a fable. And it certainly is not one of the strange doctrines that the writer of Hebrews makes mention here in verse 9. Uh, no doubt there are strange doctrines in our day, just as there were strange doctrines in Paul's day. Uh, things that we see today and we say, well, this is something brand new. Most likely it's not new. Uh, religion and substitutes for grace have been alive and well for centuries. And they will continue to be alive and well. Uh, one of those uh, grand reminders of that is every time we see something that's false, we see a strange doctrine. And for the believing heart, the person whose heart's been established by grace, they look at that and they say, what is this strange doctrine? Because grace allows us to recognize that which is strange, that which is wrong. Uh, it's almost as if there's this giant light that says, this is wrong. Well, that's the evidence of a heart that's established with grace. Uh, man's intellect does not allow him to distinguish between right and wrong doctrine. Uh, right doctrine is not distinguished by man's intellect. It's distinguished by a heart that's established with grace. And so it is God and His grace that establishes the heart. Uh, but this wonderful benefit of this is that the heart that's established by grace does not flounder in religious, strange doctrines. It doesn't spend time wasting time in intellectualism. It doesn't spend time in philosophy. A heart that's established by grace believes that God's grace and God's doctrine is to be believed. It is to not only be believed, but we are persuaded and settled in that matter. Uh, there is no moving away the heart that's established with real grace. You say people fall away all the time. People move away all the time. I would submit to you in many cases their heart was never established with grace. 
You said they were a Christian. They were a believer. I do not believe if they are actually a Christian and a believer that they will ever fully and finally fall away. Don't say they were a believer and a Christian and then they cease to be. They never were. Man doesn't lose his salvation. Just as man can't earn it, he doesn't get it by his works, doesn't get it by his righteousness. No, believing hearts are the fruit of a heart that's established by grace. Our foundation, of course, in the way of righteousness is based upon he who we've said and sung so much about today. It's the foundation of Christ. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Him. All glory be to Him as we sang, the sands of times are sinking. As time moves on, it will always be Christ as the foundation. There is no doctrine that will supersede Christ. No matter how man tries to do it, no matter what the world says, and even when our own country outlaws and bans the true gospel of Christ, and it will happen, it'll still be the foundation. We're established by that grace because of the love of God. Grace is based upon God's unmerited love through Christ. And because the heart is established by the love of Christ, we have acceptance with God. So a heart established with grace is acceptable before God. Man's heart apart from God is deceptive and desperately wicked who can know it. Don't ever just say, I'll just go with my heart. I trust my heart in this matter. Uh, your heart is still capable of leading you astray. Your feelings are capable of leading you into something that it shouldn't be. But in Christ, we have the full and complete atonement of our sins. All of our righteousness, which Isaiah says is as filthy rags. We are perfectly righteous in the sight of God in and by Christ alone. So when we truly trust Christ, we are no longer looking for a way to God. We're no longer looking for some way to get us there. Our hearts are settled. A heart established with grace is a settled heart. It's convinced. It's persuaded. Strange doctrines will not knock it off course. When we trust Christ, we're no longer wandering around in darkness trying to feel our way through life. Uh, even during struggling, trying times in our country and in our history, the Christians should not be groping around in the darkness as if they don't have any light. You should not be confused and lost and wondering what is going on. You should be convinced that the light of Jesus Christ is shining even in the dark. And I should be just as hopeful in these trying times as I am when times appear to be more godly. The world and the nation's gone through many periods of time when we've given them names. We've given them names like the Great Awakening. We've given those times when there was a tenderness and a special, uh, just a, a special movement of God. And we hear about uh, revival taking place all over the world and entire towns shutting down and the gospel just going forth and seemingly every eye is open and every ear is unstopped. And other times we see it appears that darkness is winning. But the reality is, a heart that's established with grace always sees the light of Christ shining. Even when the world around it is dark. 
we're not religiously confused. I'm not confused by what the world's trying to feed me. I don't listen to it and say, I wonder if I'm wrong. I don't look at it and say, they have a point there. No, the world doesn't have a point. The world's only point is self-satisfaction. And the world's only point is, this is about me. And this is about what I want. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. The book of Judges is not the only place where that applies. That is, for all of humanity, man does what's right in his own eyes and what his own heart tells him to do. Even Jesus himself said, man is not defiled by the outside, he's defiled by what's in the heart. That's what comes out. But a heart that's established by the grace of God has the light of revealed truth in it. And I don't look for my happiness in this world. I'm looking for eternal happiness with my Savior. As we'll deal with on Wednesday night during our series in the book of Revelation, the grand three words, behold, he cometh. That's where my hope is at. My heart that's established with grace is expecting and looking for my Lord to come and, and take me and take his bride. But yet, sometimes we forget that our hearts are established with grace. Now in verse 8, remember, we learned about the immutability of Christ and how important this is, that that's the very foundation of a heart that's established with grace. When I know for certain that Christ cannot change, when I know for certain that Christ is always and will always be the same, He is immutable, my heart is settled on that. There really is three main headings I want to give us this morning as we deal with this, and they all begin with the word let. In verses 9 through 12, we see let our hearts be established with this grace. And we'll talk about being reminded and understanding what it is. And second heading will be, let us go forth unto Him. Verses 13 and 14. And then verses 15 through 16, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God. When the Bible makes mention of the let us, the writers are not writing to society in general. They are writing to the us, those who are in the faith, those who are believers. The same hope that we have is not the same hope or lack of hope that a believe, an unbeliever does not have. There are those in the world that believe that in the end, everybody will be saved. Everybody will go to heaven. God will accept man's greatest efforts. And none of those things are true. Man's efforts, no matter how pretty they are, will ever be enough. No work of the flesh, no work will ever gain acceptance with God. Nothing that we do, nothing that we say gains acceptance with God. No act of obedience that you carry out is gaining acceptance with God. You're accepted by God through the righteousness of Christ. Christ is the center of your heart because it is established with grace. In verses 9 through 12, we see here that God's grace was us, demonstrated toward us by Christ. How do we know about grace? We know about grace because of Christ. Now, the writer goes back and reminds us of where we've been. He says that, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats. 
Now, if we had not been doing an expositional verse-by-verse study of this, we would wonder, what in the world is he talking about meats? What does meat have to do with anything? Well, remember, part of the purpose of the book of Hebrews was to remind the people who were tempted to go back to the old way. They were tempted to go back to saying the keeping of the, of, of, of the sacrifices and the meats and saying this is really what it is. It's not just Christ. It's Christ plus these things. And the writer pretty much puts that to rest by saying, not with meats. It is not with meats. When a heart is established with grace, there are really three key words here. The word heart, the word established, and the word grace. When a heart has been established with this grace that was demonstrated, demonstrated towards us with Christ, the heart deals with the conviction and the repentance and the faith and having a right knowledge of Christ, those are works of the heart, not just mental acceptance of the facts. There are many today who believe that salvation is just accepting fact. Salvation is not found in you believing that there was a worldwide flood, for example. That's not saving faith. Just because you believe a fact, and by the way, the worldwide flood is a fact, I don't care what your scientist says. I don't care what your public school book says. It's wrong. It's a worldwide flood. It was, it's an actual fact. Believing that mentally does not mean you're in Christ. Ascending to facts. A heart work is much different than a mental work. It is the work of the heart. Paul, when he was writing to the Romans in chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, deals with this, this principle, this concept of not just a mental ascent, but a work of the heart. And this is probably familiar to us, but Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It does not say, for with the head man believes. Heart work is a work directly of God. Established, it's an interesting word. An established heart means a heart that's convinced. A heart that's persuaded, and I would add one more stage of that, it's settled. A settled heart is a heart that's established in grace. What am I settled on today? I am settled in my heart regarding the righteousness of God that is only found through Christ, and it is the only acceptable way to God. It's not by the keeping of the law. It's not by the keeping and the refraining of meats. It's not by the keeping of special days. It's not by works of righteousness, which I have done. The only acceptable way that the established heart is convinced of and persuaded and settled on is that Christ is the only way to God. Christ is the only way to God. Grace. We see that word everywhere. Our hymnal, hymns of grace. Some teach that grace is something that we tap into. Some teach that grace is something we have to mentally come to grips with. But grace 
is when we understand that salvation, justification, and eternal happiness are the results of God's grace to us in Christ Jesus. It isn't just ascending to facts. It's a heart that's actually accepting of these things. But it also knows that the grace that I've received is not by deeds of the law or by my works. Look with me at Titus chapter 3. We'll come back to Hebrews here in a minute. Titus chapter 3 and look at verses 5 through 7. Titus 3 verses 5 through 7. Verse 5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly. How? Through Jesus Christ our Savior. That being justified by our grace? No, by His grace. We should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And I love what Paul says. This is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly. I have that phrase circled, starred, squared. (laughs) Do you see there might be some emphasis there? Affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. Notice the order. The heart that's established in grace and by grace, who has believed, will have good works, but they at no point believe that their good works are the reason that they have or will have grace. The heart established with grace produces good works. It's the fruit. If there is no fruit in your life, then your heart is not established with grace. And notice he says, affirm it constantly. These things are good and profitable unto men. Now he goes on and he mentions, avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable in vain. This goes right back to what he was saying in Hebrews about it's not the meats. You're right there in Titus. Turn back to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Very similar language here. I've always found it interesting that many of the same ways in which Paul penned the letter to Titus, he says many of the same things to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. He says, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus. I love this. Before the world began. But is now made manifest. Now it is revealed, if you will. By the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, 
for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Sounds like a hymn, doesn't it? Because <laughs> it is. The hymn writer got that exact right from Scripture. You've heard the principle of singing Scripture. There's an example of a song that sings that. He says, hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. So an established heart by grace is not unsettled. It is not tossed about. It's not tossed to and fro like the ocean waves. It's not carried away from this grace by strange doctrines. I'm a little bit alarmed by people who say they're Christians who are so easily moved away are easily convinced on somebody else might be right and they're wrong, who easily hear something that is patently false, contrary to God's word, and yet they say, I wonder if that might be true. A heart established by grace is not moved by those things. It's not moved by some new doctrine. You can bombard me with any false cult out there and you're not convincing me to move off the grace of God. I don't care what cult it is. And there are many. There are quote-unquote Christian cults you better be aware of. They have Christian on the name, they have Christian on the door, but they're far from Christian. They're preaching a strange doctrine. And by the way, a strange doctrine would be a doctrine that teaches in any way, shape, or form that you are saved by your works. Any work. Any work. If you think you have anything to do with your salvation, you don't understand grace. Strange doctrines because they're not taught in the Word of God. Why are they not taught in the Word of God? Because they're not in agreement with the person and work of Christ. That's why you don't see them. Anything contrary to the person and work of Christ is patently false. Because those doctrines are contrary to the doctrine of salvation by grace. Now, sadly, in our day and age, we have a new obsession. Not, let me rephrase that. A new to us obsession with being occupied with the ceremonial law. That suddenly now we are required to keep all the ceremonies and we are to have a return back to those things. And there's an obsession with it. When we started this series almost a year ago in Hebrews, we asked the question, why in the world would a group of believers have to be reminded to not go back to the ceremonial law? Here at the last chapter of the book, he's still reminding them. This obsession is to be occupied with the ceremonial law, which is the refraining or the eating of certain meats, keeping certain days, or engaging in certain ceremonies which bring no profit to the soul. That conduct is not bringing any profit to your soul. The ceremonial law could not sanctify, it can't justify, it cannot establish your heart by grace, and it will not give peace to the soul. If you know how many people in Christian, Christendom are wandering around here obsessed with the ceremonial law, it would alarm you. How many people are starting to ask these questions again and they're saying, do I have to do this? Am I supposed to be doing this? And they are unsettled and they are tossed to and fro and you have to remind them, do you realize this is settled in Christ Jesus? And even Paul had to talk about it in his day. 
Look at the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae in Colossians chapter 2. And we'll just pull a part of this today because we, for sake of time, we can't cover it all. But Colossians 2, again, nothing is new under the sun. Ecclesiastes said there'll be nothing new under the sun. It's not new today. It wasn't new in Paul's day. Colossians 2 verse 16. Uh, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. I don't think Paul could have wrote any clearer. Those things will puff your fleshly mind up and will lead you to the conclusion that because you're a quote-unquote keeper of the ceremonial law, you are better. No such thing is true. This ceremonial law that they were so tempted to give themselves back over to is a reminder that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. He also wrote to the church at Rome. Again, let's go to Romans 14. Lots of scripture here today, of course, but a lot of different passages to kind of drive home this point today from various sources. The the best commentary of the Bible is the Bible itself, right? So what does the Bible say about this? Romans 14, and let's look at uh, verse, um, verse 13. Let us not, therefore, judge one another anymore, but judge this rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably, destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that is in these things serves Christ, is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat destroyeth not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. Of course, there's many, many things to that, but I want you to see again that he is calling us to be reminded that the settled, established heart is in Christ. There's a pastor that many of you will not be familiar with, uh, but this uh, man um, greatly encourages me in his expositions of Scripture. His name is Tim James. And here's what he writes about these strange and diverse doctrines. He says, Strange and diverse doctrines will not carry one about if his heart be established with grace. The message of the gospel is the message of grace. This aspect of the gospel makes it impossible for the believer to be carried away by anything else. If it is grace that is established in the heart, there is neither room nor warrant for anything but grace. If any other doctrine raises its head, it finds no purchase in the heart established with grace. It's a wonderful reminder of what that grace really is. Back to our text, Hebrews 13.10, he expounds upon this more. He says, we have an altar. This is not a random statement that the writer is giving. He is making reference to the altars of sacrifice. 
And he's now harkening them back to the Old Testament and the way these things were done. He says, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Verse 10 here is a reference to the Levitical priest who was required as part of the sacrifice itself to eat part of that sacrifice. If you go back to Leviticus, go all the way back to the Old Testament, I want you to see this so that these references that are being made are not just these random thoughts, but rather these are, he's, he's hearkening them back to exactly what was commanded. And Leviticus 6 beginning there in verse 14, deals with the law of the meat offering. He says, And this is the law of the meat offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord before the altar. And he shall take of it his handful of the flour of the meat offering and of the oil thereof and all the frankincense which is upon the meat offering and shall burn it upon the altar for a sweet savor, even the memorial of it unto the Lord. And the remainder thereof shall Aaron and his sons eat. With unleavened bread shall it be eaten in the holy place in the court of the tabernacle of the congregation. They shall eat it. And he goes on and he gives the instructions as to how it's to be baked and what's to be done with it. The sacrifice was offered. It was burned upon the altar. And then the portion was to be eaten by the priest. That's what makes reference to when he says in verse 10 of Hebrews 13, we have an altar, which or whereof they have no right to eat, which serves the tabernacle. He says there's an altar that the priests of the tabernacle, if they were relying on that, would not have a right to eat of. Now the altar here, we have an altar, is not a physical altar. It's not even the cross itself. Oftentimes in our churches, we, we use this Christian, Christianese, where we used to call these steps the altar. Come to the altar. You're never going to hear me say that. Now, I am going to say, come to Christ, who's the altar. This is not an altar. There's not a kneeling bench in front of you. There's not a kneeling bench at the front. The altar he's talking about is not even the altar where the animal sacrifices and the meat was distributed and burned and then eaten. He says, we have an altar that those priests don't have a right to, which is an interesting word he uses here. We have the right to come to the altar of Christ. He is the altar. He's the sacrifice. He is the priest. And when Jesus used those offending words, in John, about what a man must do. He must eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. Jesus also had in mind the Levitical priesthood when he told them that, the Pharisees, and then because he, he asked the Pharisees who were offended by his saying, he turns to the disciples and he says, does this also offend you? Now, he wasn't talking about cannibalistic rules here. He wasn't saying, you've got to eat my blood and drink my flesh. But he was talking about the sacrifice of himself. That that's the altar. See how, how ridiculous it would be to think that Jesus was saying, you need to eat of my body physically. 
He was referencing back to that meat offering. Those who even today persist believing that they can be saved by works and duties of the law, and we'll show you from Scripture where Paul says this, have no right to come to Christ. So if you're trying to get to Christ by your works and your obedience to the law, you have no right to him. You say, that's kind of harsh. That's what the Bible says. You have no right to Christ on your own terms. But I'm sincere. You're sincerely wrong. Your sincere heart does not make you acceptable for God. Let's look quickly at that. It's in John chapter 6. I want you to see, again, we go to these passages and sometimes it's hard because we, we're not, all of John chapter 6 is uh, a, a tremendous portion. It's 71 verses. So we're, we're picking up in the middle of these conversations. But if you'll drop down to verse 53 of John 6, the Jews in verse 52, they strove among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then, then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in me. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise, up, raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, I live by the Father. So he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven. That bread is Christ. Not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many therefore of his disciples. Notice this. Now remember, all the disciples were not true followers. There are people who were disciples who later turned from him and never returned. But he turns to them. And when they had heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he saith unto them, doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. How, why is it we cannot get that through our head? We are... Even in our, in our best intents, we keep trying to offer up fleshly offerings. They're not acceptable. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Listen, if you're dead this morning, you're dead in your trespasses and sins, you are hearing the words of life this morning. And if you are outside the body of Christ today, if you are unconverted, you are unsaved today, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, you are hearing the words of life. Jesus was speaking the words of life to those that were there. But there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he goes on to say that no man can come unto me except it were given of him by my Father. The persistence of trying to earn and be saved by your works are a work of the flesh, but biblically, there is no profit. And then look at Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Paul cuts right through all of it. And as Paul only could do other than the Lord himself, 
He tells the Galatians, verse 1 of chapter 5 of Galatians, he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. You see, there were those that thought, well, I'm circumcised, so I'm acceptable to God. And he said, no, you're actually in debt to do the entire law and to keep the law perfectly. Your circumcision alone isn't going to get you there. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of the righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. That verse of Hebrews 13.10 really begins this process here. Verse 11, now in our, back in our text, he says, For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. On the day of atonement, the bullock and the goat were slain. The blood was then brought into the Holy of Holies, and it was sprinkled upon the mercy seat. That blood upon the mercy seat was there to make an atonement. Now, we realize the Day of Atonement was once a year. Only the high priest could go in there. He had to follow all of the requirements, all of the standards, had to do everything the right way. The bullock and the goat were then taken outside of the camp and burned. We see this happening, go again all the way back to Leviticus. This time go to Leviticus 16. All those times when we struggle and we've all been there, we're reading through Leviticus and we're saying, I don't understand all this. This seems so deep. I don't get the point. This is all related to what's happening here even in Hebrews. Leviticus 16 verse 15. This is picking up now uh, with the sacrifice of the bullock and the goat. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, sprinkled upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness." And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for the whole congregation of Israel. So we see the requirements here. Drop down to verse 27. And the bullock for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make an atonement in the holy place shall one carry forth without the camp and they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh, and their dung. And he that burneth them shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water, and afterward he shall come into the camp. I have I've encouraged this many times in the years I've been here. You should really strongly, I'm, I'm strongly encouraging you to make Leviticus 16 a deep study. And you should, get, you should wring everything out of Leviticus 16 you possibly can because the picture of Leviticus 16 points us directly unto Christ. On that day, those bullocks and those goats, they were taken outside the camp. 
They were, they were done. That was part of that process. In order for Christ to sanctify us with his blood and to fulfill this type, remember, the Old Testament's filled with types and pictures. Jesus Christ fulfilled this type in the picture of the blood of the bullock and the goat because Jesus himself was crucified outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem, which answers that picture of those having to be taken outside of the camp of Israel. The flesh, the skin, and the dung of the sin offering were all unclean before God. And they had to be carried outside of the camp to be disposed of. Well, we just read there in Leviticus 16, even the men who handled all of that had to wash because the handling of those things, they were considered unclean themselves. In that picture, what you see in Leviticus 16, and again, we didn't read it all. I encourage you to read the whole chapter. We see not just the suffering of our Lord for sin, but it's a picture and a type of the shame and the reproach he would endure as our perfect sin offering. He bore our sins. Jesus Christ took upon himself something that he was not. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Now, don't make the mistake that I've heard some people say, and you think this is not a big deal. It is a big deal. Jesus Christ did not become a sinner. If someone tells you the story and they say, Jesus Christ on the cross became a sinner, that's false. He became sin for us. He took upon the wrath of God. He took the penalty for our sin. I heard someone recently just say, you know what? There's no way Jesus would have went to the cross unless he had some sin in him. He was without sin. Period. Completely. Totally without sin. You and I cannot say the same. So back in our text, Hebrews 13, the second statement here is, let us go forth unto him. Now, the majority of our time has been spent on that main heading. So we're going to move quickly through these other two headings. But let us go forth unto him. What does it mean? Verse 13, it says, let us go forth there for unto him without the camp bearing his reproach. We here have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Folks, for the believer whose hope is found in God's grace through Christ, this world offers you no hope. If you are more attracted by the things of this world than you are the things of Christ, there's something desperately wrong with your understanding of God's grace. You see, we want the best the world has to offer, but we want God's grace too. We want both worlds. And yet, he says, let us go forth. The key words here are, go forth where? Unto him. Why? Because Christ is our perfect offering for sin. He is our source of redemption. He is our redeemer. Wherever Christ is, is where we want to be. When Jesus gave that great that great. Uh, sermon to his disciples in John 14 when he he told them that he was going to prepare a place for them listen for the believer there is nothing more exciting than that knowing that one day you are going to where he is and again if you're wrapped up on what your house in heaven's going to look at you've missed it if you think heaven is some kind of an extension just a better version of earth you're being carried away with strange doctrines. 
It's not the presence of streets of gold. It's not the presence of gates. It's the presence of Christ. He says, let us go forth unto him. He's saying, quit going forth unto that old altar that cannot save you. Go forth unto him. But it also means that we're going to suffer reproach. I'm afraid many of us think we're suffering reproach for Christ and you haven't seen anything yet. We think a rejection of our faith at our workplace is reproach. We think that's suffering for Jesus. We think, well, somebody made fun of me at school today. That's not reproach. It might be a little bit of a harassment. Tell the people in the underground churches in China about that. Tell them you were, you were called a name at school today and see what they say. Your suffering is not under blood. You haven't resisted yet under blood, we saw earlier. Christ suffered reproach. He suffered outside the camp. We are identified with Him. We are identified with Him. We're not identified with human works or worldliness or whatever is contrary to our Lord. Whatever reproach we get from the natural or religious world, we say bring it on because that is not what we're looking for. We're not looking for this world. Notice he says, for here have we no continuing city. The world and everything in it is unstable. Do I have to tell you how unstable the world is? Is, is that kind of one of Mr. Obvious today, right? Do you, do you actually look out on the landscape and can you point to one area of the world that's stable? See, you just think it is. If your routine does not get knocked off course, you think you're stable. You think if everything happens in a certain order, it's stable. Just because it's not disrupted doesn't mean it's stable. So when instability hits, the world panics. Christians don't panic because nothing this world offers is what I'm seeking after. I am not interested in this continuing. I am looking for that which is to come. Behold, he cometh. You know one day that's actually what we're going to say? Because it's not going to be some secret arrival. Every eye is going to see him, but we're going to say, Behold, he cometh. There he is. Not like the, the scoffers when Peter says, Where's the promise of his coming? There are people in churches that call themselves churches today that do not even believe that Jesus Christ is coming again. They have been carried away with a strange doctrine. He's coming again. Everything in this world, the riches, the position, the authority, the pleasures, even the people in it are going to pass away. Though we are in this world, we're not to love this world. Remember, love not the world, 1 John chapter 2. Love not the world or the things that are in it. Beware the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. He says, we have nothing here. But then the third heading, he says, let us offer the sacrifice of praise. Sacrifice of praise to God. Verse 15, by him, therefore, let us offer. There's that third let us heading. Let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. It's kind of similar to what we read, affirm constantly. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. The sacrifice of praise to God, we see the outward evidence of inward grace. Through Christ. 
It is by Christ that our sacrifice of praise is acceptable. There is no coming to God except through Christ. Every blessing, every provision, every mercy is through him, by him, and for him. And even what we say, even what we praise is only acceptable because of Christ. You realize even when God's grace is extended to the unjust. I want, to, I want you to be challenged by this for a minute. An unjust person who even in his mental ascent acknowledges that this must be a God that gave it to me. If he says, I thank and praise God for that, if it's apart from Christ, it's not acceptable before God. Because our praise is only acceptable through Jesus Christ. Folks, I'm afraid we got a lot of people walking around saying, I'm in Christ, I'm in Christ, but they, they only have the sacrifice of what the book of Romans says, man is without excuse. You can't argue that there's not a God. But just because you believe there's a God does not mean that you are saved through Christ. Being made priests before God by Christ, all of those typical ceremonial sacrifices, they were fulfilled by Christ. The writer in Hebrews here points out what type of sacrifice we are now to offer. It's the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. How often are we to offer this praise continually? That means in every situation, in every circumstance, the believer has so many things to be thankful for. It's called the fruit of our lips because it's a reference back to the offering of the first fruits in the Old Testament. The first fruits was to distinguish it from the ceremonial sacrifices. In what way are we to praise God? Well, what does it say? The fruit of our lips, giving thanks. We ought to verbally thank the Lord and praise God continually. We often say, well, you know, we're, we're one of those, we're just kind of one of those silent people. We don't want anybody to hear. Listen, the fruit of your lips should not be a shameful thing. Now, I'm not telling you to, to get emotional and make it a spectacle and make God's word about you. But every time we hear the words of life, whether you're in the faith or not in the faith yet, a word of praise and a word of thanksgiving ought to be right there. If you have to find something to praise God for, I want you to question, is your heart really established by grace? Now look, life is not easy and it's not perfect. And if you're looking for a perfect life, you are going to be disappointed. This world is fallen. It's a depraved world. Like I said, we're grieved by the things we see happening. But it should not shock us that those who are living in darkness are trying to get darker and darker and darker. And it's not by chance. There's an intentional hatred of God. But we are to continually offer the fruit of thanksgiving. And then he finishes, we'll finish with verse 16. He says, but do good and to communicate, forget not. In other words, don't forget to do good and don't forget to communicate. Listen, sacrifice of praises and love that comes off of our lips, it's good. But also we ought to have a heart that shows evidence of grace. 
Folks, it, it's, it's alarming to me. The levels of unkindness that we're experiencing. Now, I could grant unkindness between unbelievers. But I'm personally appalled by the unkindness that actually between believers. The unkindness where we have to remind each other, be kind to brothers and sisters in Christ. Be kind to them. Extend grace to them. Listen, I have, I have no interest in getting in these debates and arguments with other brothers and sisters in Christ over things that are matters of preference. But being kind, doing good, and he says, don't forget to do that. Communicate, don't forget it. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Part of our sacrifice of praise and love is in what we say and how we praise God, but helping others and being kind and doing good to others shows the work of grace in our hearts, and it does glorify God. Remember, Jesus himself in the book of Matthew says, when you do good unto another, you're actually doing good unto him. That's a paraphrase, but that's the gist of what he says. Our hearts are established with the gospel, the grace of God, the doctrine of the grace of God, the truth of the grace of God. We know that that grace is not by our works, but it's the work that God has done. Everything about our standing before God has nothing to do with our works. It has to do with his works. Our salvation, our justification, our sanctification, our eternal life, they are all the result of God's grace found in and through Jesus Christ. Folks, it will never be about your deeds. It'll never be about your obedience to the law. and It'll never be about your works of the flesh. There is nothing that you do that is gaining you favor with God. But let me encourage you this morning that you, if you are, have a heart that's established by grace, your heart is not unsettled. Your heart is not being tossed about, being carried away by some false gospel, or as Paul warned in the book of Galatians, the first chapter, another gospel, which there are really no other gospels. There's only one gospel. Everything else that's different than that is false. But I don't have to be concerned about my heart being carried away from sovereign grace. I don't have to worry about it. Now, I'm to be diligent. I'm to be diligent in my study. Some of you are unsettled. Again, I'm not, I'm not pointing at anybody in particular, but some of you are unsettled because you're not diligently in the Word. You're not even reminding yourself of these truths. You're coming and you're being fed one time per week. I'm not the only one that should feed you. You should be feeding on God's Word every day and not just a two-minute devotion in the morning. Feeding on God's Word, studying to show yourself approved. Digging deeper and say, I want to know more about my Lord and the power of His resurrection, as Paul said. I want to know more about Jesus, more about God. The strange winds and the strange doctrines are only going to increase. Man is inventing new cults even as we speak. There are things you're going to deal with you don't even know exist yet. If your heart gets carried away with it, is your heart really established with grace? 
And as believers this morning, if you are in Christ, we should rejoice that our hearts are established with grace. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for so many things today. We're thankful for the daily provisions in this world. We're thankful for the blessings that you give us even to live this life. And Lord, they are all blessings from you and we are grateful. But Lord, we know that our greatest joy and our greatest desire is not even for peace in this world or the glories and honors of this world, but our greatest hope and desire lies in being with our Lord. Father, I pray that even through this time that our eyes would be removed from the things of this world and the unsettled and instability we see, and that we would be reminded yet again to turn our eyes to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who counted us, counted it worthy in and of himself, he counted it worthy to suffer and die for the objects of his love. Lord, not because we merit it, not because of our value, but because of his sovereign grace. Lord, mankind and ourselves included mentally will never fully understand this deep mystery. But if our hearts have been established by this grace, may we rejoice in it. Lord, my heart, as I believe many other believers here today, is burdened by those whose eyes are still blinded, those are, who are hardened to the gospel, those that may be in this building today, but those that we work with, those that we communicate with, Father, may we understand that the grace that saved us is the same grace that must save and open their eyes. May we deal tenderly with people, but deal uh, courageously and deal in the truth. But Father, may we remember that apart from you saving us, we would have never chosen to come to God on our own. We would still be trying to find and invent our own ways, and we'd be coming up short. May we repent of every work of the flesh that we have in any way, shape, or form, believed that it would bring us acceptability with you. Father, we thank you that we've had this time together. And it's in Christ's name and for his sake, I pray. Amen.